Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel and in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear God's holy word. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing and for your spirit now that you would guide us into truth to help us to hear the voice of our Savior, your Son, Jesus, amid the cacophony of lies and competing voices and counterfeits and fakes that would all rob us of joy and blessing in being the men and women you have created us to be, in enjoying the institution of marriage as you have established it. So now we pray, Father, guide us into truth so that we might live and have joy and blessing as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Marriage is a dying institution, or so you would think. If you go by the published statistics that are often reported, if you go by popular opinion, you would say, yes, that's right. Marriage is a dying institution. All the metrics point to an increasing unpopularity of marriage in our society. The marriage rate has been on a steady decline since the early 80s. In the 1980s, uh, the percentage of, of adults who had never been married was only 9%. Today, it's over uh, 20% of adults who've never been married. Um, in the early 80s, uh, the percentage of people age 18 to 34 who were presently married were 59%. Uh, 60% of people age 18 to 34 were married in the 1980s. Today, that's only 29%. 29% of people 18 to 34. The average age of people getting married is getting older. Cohabitation is quickly replacing marriage as an option for many young people. Uh, 40% of children are now born outside of marriage, as opposed to 28% in the early 90s. So you can see every number that you look at and every metric that you consult, marriage is growing increasingly unpopular. And one real big problem with these statistics is now they're polluted with the redefinition of marriage. So homosexual pairings are now indiscriminately lumped in with actual marriages. So the institution of marriage is not only being marginalized, there's an agenda to redefine it entirely, to make it something it's not. And so if you were to extract homosexual pairings out of the marriage statistics, it would actually look a lot worse than what it is if you subtract the counterfeits. One best-selling psychiatrist seems to encapsulate the popular sentiment. He writes, marriage is, as it has been for decades now, 
Marriage is a source of real suffering for the vast majority of married people. Very few normal people who live together for long enough want to keep on doing it. It's only a matter of time now. Marriage will fade away. We should be thinking about what might replace it. We should come up with something that improves the quality of our lives and those of our children, end quote. As if it were just up to us, as if it were up to us to just invent something new to make up a new institution that, and, that, and that anything we could come up with would actually improve anything. Suffering in marriage is a result of sin. Marriage is suffering because of sin, not because of God's design. God's design is perfect. We are the sinners who mess it up. Now, it's tempting to think that it's never been this way before, that all throughout history and through all societies and through all cultures, it's, it's easy to assume that marriage has always been this highly honored institution, that all of the ancients and all the medievals, all the way up through the good old days of the 1950s, that everybody had this shared attitude toward the value and the sanctity and the importance of marriage, that everyone had the same family values, and it was only recently that we started to see this decline, but that's not the case at all. Marriage has always been under attack. Ever since the garden, Satan worked to drive wedges between Adam and Eve and God and to introduce chaos because Satan hates what God has put together. Satan hates any hint of human happiness and fulfillment. And so he's always sought, from the beginning, he has sought to pervert and corrupt and prevent marriage. And so the days that Jesus entered, the days that Jesus lived in, this wasn't the golden age of the family and marriage by any stretch. Among the Greeks, relationships outside of marriage did not carry any stigma whatsoever. And in fact, extramarital relationships were the accepted thing and the expected thing. Extramarital relationships were considered part of the ordinary routine of life. Any ordinary free Greek man was expected to have all sorts of concubines and courtesans along with his wife. And his wife's only purpose was to bring him legitimate heirs. It, it didn't matter so much if he pursued other women or even other men outside of his marriage. And so the Greeks lived with this disgustingly low standard of expectations for men and yet at the same time demanded the utmost moral and sexual purity of women who were married. So married women were not permitted to be on the street alone. Uh, they weren't to have any kind of social life outside of the members of their house. And so many married women in Greek society lived lives of almost complete seclusion. Divorce in Greece required no legal process whatsoever. All a man had to do was dismiss his wife in the presence of two witnesses, return her dowry, and it's over. Now imagine the church coming into this environment and preaching fidelity and preaching purity and chastity and love between one woman and one man in a relationship of mutual honor and respect and tenderness and sacrifice, how alien that would be to that culture when the church enters Greek society. Rome 
separate from Greece, Rome had a higher view of the home as an institution initially. The home was a seat of a man's power. He held the authority of life and death over his family. So there, there was some sense of honor attached to the, to the home and the family. And the Roman woman, the woman of the house, was not secluded as she was in Greek society. Roman married women held a much larger role in the life of the family and the community than Greek women. But still, her husband was permitted to have multiple wives. Divorce was initially considered dishonorable in the early days of Rome, but as the empire was gradually rotted out by Greek immorality, marriage became nothing more than a formality. Divorce became as commonplace as marriage, and it went both ways. Men and women both had multiple divorces and remarriages. The Roman historians would talk about how some women would mark the years, not by the number of the year, but by the name of their husband. What year was that? Oh, that was, you know, Seleucus or whatever. Uh, that, that, that's that year. Um, Seneca, the Roman historian Seneca, mentions a woman who had eight husbands in five years. And so when the gospel came to Rome, it did not come to a chaste society. Don't, don't think that, oh, the old times, oh, it was so much better back then. You may think that things were better among the Jews, at least there among the people who had God's laws, uh, the people who were called to be separate from the world. There must have been among the Jews some reservoir of faithfulness and fidelity in marriage, but that was not the case, not in practice at least. On paper and in theory, Jews abhorred divorce. However, in practice, the Jewish attitude toward marriage fell far short of their own ideals. The, prop, the, the popular rabbinical teaching at the time was based on a distorted understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me just read a section of Deuteronomy 24 for you. Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, if she marries another man, he must not later remarry the same woman, that is an abomination. That, that's the teaching. What the law is correcting there is this light, casual attitude toward divorce and remarriage the kind that we just described among the Greeks and the Romans. Divorce is a grave thing. And, and if there was a just cause for divorce in the beginning, that's the final word. You don't shrug it off later and remarry the same woman if there's been a marriage in between. But in the first century, Jewish scribes, legal experts, fixated on a certain phrase in that chapter, that a man may divorce his wife if she finds no favor in his eyes. And they gave their blessing to any man who wanted to divorce any woman for any reason. By the way, women were not afforded a similar liberty, but men were. All a man had to do was write out a letter of dismissal and send her out the door. And there was some debate among the rabbis, among the scribes and Pharisees, some debate about what Moses meant by uncleanness or indecency, if he's found some uncleanness in her, what's he, what's he talking about? So there was a strict school of thought that said, well, that can only mean adultery. 
But there was another school of thought that interpreted uncleanness or indecency in the widest possible way. A Jewish man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner, or if she went outside without her head covered, or if she talked to another man, or if she was a loud, disrespectful woman, or even if he found a woman that he thought was more attractive than his wife. This was all permitted. You see, these were the Jewish rabbis. These were the experts. These were the teachers of the law who made all of these exceptions. So you don't have to guess over time which interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 won out, which one had the greater influence. Was it the strict one or was it the very liberal uh, interpretation of Deuteronomy 24? Well, by the time of Jesus, divorce had grown easier and easier with less stigma among the Jews. One writer comments, that at the time when Jesus came into the world, the world was in danger of witnessing the almost total breakup of the institution of marriage and the collapse of the home. So don't think our difficulties today are exceptional in a historical sense. Marriage has always been threatened from within and from without. And when Jesus speaks on marriage, he's not making a couple of minor tweaks, you know, just a few course corrections, just some good advice for maybe a little happier house. Jesus isn't providing outdated advice to a situation that was way more pure and way more uh, unsophisticated and traditional than our own. Jesus' words aren't out of touch. No, Jesus is speaking to a society in which the structure of family life was collapsing. And thus, in every way, what Jesus has to say about marriage and the duties of husbands and wives is not out of touch. It is very much in touch with present day realities. We must start there. In fact, the reason that we have pain and disappointment in marriage, which is a reality. I'm not sweeping that under the rug. I'm not saying there's no pain and disappointment in marriage. There is. But the reason for that is not because we need some new arrangement of relationships. It's not because we haven't found a new and better institution to replace marriage. No, every single heartache, pain, difficulty we suffer in marriage is because we have deliberately ignored God's plan and design. He created marriage. And when we improvise on it is when we suffer. When we live in, in alignment with his good created order, that's when we thrive and that's when we flourish. In the Sermon on the Mount, as we've spent the last few weeks studying it, Jesus is calling his disciples to a righteousness that eclipses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus points to a way of obedience to his father's law that exposes the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees as no righteousness at all, as we've just seen. I mean, that's not, that's not obedience to the law. Their way of, of obeying the law is to make long lists of obligations which have this appearance of piety. They have this appearance of separation from the world, but they miss the point. And actually, they become enemies of the law. They're not keepers of the law. They're destroyers of the law. The, the idea that the, the Pharisees, their problem was they just took it too far, that's absolutely incorrect. They didn't, they didn't take the law too far. They didn't bend over backwards to obey it. 
Jesus is exposing them here for not obeying the law at all. In fact, all of these tedious ordinances just create loopholes through which they can justify their disobedience. That's what they're doing. And here's the thing, and, and this kind of struck me when I was reading back through the Sermon on the Mount this week. The people to whom Jesus is speaking, remember where we are geographically. We're in Galilee. We're far away from Jerusalem. We're far away from the temple and the Sanhedrin and the seats of power. And we're far away from all of their influence. We're out in Galilee. So these people to whom Jesus is speaking, they knew this about the Pharisees and the scribes. And when they went down to Jerusalem during the feast days and they witnessed these pompous displays of self-righteousness and they were burdened by these extra biblical expectations, they had to have known that the emperor had no clothes. These are fishermen, these are carpenters, these are merchants. And they go down there and they see these ostentatious displays and they say, yeah, right. Yeah, that's, they knew that there was no real spiritual substance to that religion. Such that I wonder, I wonder if there was a chuckle that went through the crowd when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe a few little wry eye rolls when he referenced the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's like, it's like if I said, unless your integrity exceed the integrity of the Clintons, you will by no means <laughs> enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your compassion exceed the compassion of Planned Parenthood, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, they, they want you to think that they have a compassion, which you know is not really compassion at all. And so what Jesus teaches here is a way of obeying God's law that, that doesn't simply do a good thing and then avoid an evil thing. No, this is a new way of living that completely disrupts the destructive patterns of fallen human thought and behavior. What Jesus is preaching is a righteousness that brings restoration to every area of life that has been corrupted by sin. It's a way of walking in wisdom led by the Spirit of God in a joyful, blessed, peaceful fellowship with our Father in heaven and with each other. To put it simply, what Jesus is preaching is a way of life uh, in which we were, we were created to live and, and a way of life that spreads life and restoration to the world so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so to achieve this, Jesus points to an obedience that begins in the heart. It's an obedience that starts in the affections. It, he's, he's beginning with a deep desire to please God and worship him in all things and watch as that works its way out into the world. Well, one significant area of human life that needs this restoration, one institution that desperately needs this restorative work of the gospel is the institution of marriage. And when we live in marriage together, relating to each other as redeemed, spirit-filled men and women, we restore God's design for not only marriage, but for the whole earth. When we live as not two, but one flesh, uh, we, that, it's like we're creating a new Eden. It's, it's, like a, it's a, like a new sanctuary. God has given us not identical mates, but complementary mates so that we are able to fulfill our callings together more 
effectively and more faithfully than we could do alone. We grow in the faith together and we grow in sanctification together in marriage. And so we don't rip apart what God has joined together. God joins together a specific man and a specific woman in marriage. God invented marriage. He gets to define it. He gets to define what our roles and our duties are in it. And he also ordains each individual marriage. He brings us together. So we don't treat it like this throwaway arrangement, like the terms and conditions that you just click through on a website. Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, I just want to use this thing as if we don't care, as if it's not important. Marriage is not an informal agreement that you can throw away when it no longer fulfills you or no longer makes you happy. Marriage is a divine creation. And thus, when we live as redeemed people, as new creatures in our marriage, our marriages and our homes become these realms where the new heavens and the new earth are realized. Our homes built on the God-ordained institution of marriage, our homes are the building blocks of a, of a stable society that obeys and loves God's laws. The prevailing modern attitude says, we don't need marriage, it's unnecessary. Why do I need some piece of paper to prove to you that I love you? I love you, baby, I love you just fine. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna hit you again, I love you. Uh, why do I need some piece of paper to prove that? That attitude is ignorant and it's wicked and it's destructive and it's dangerous. You know why? Because that's not love. That's a redefinition redef of love. Love commits itself. Love binds itself in covenant. Love gives itself to another. This is what God has done for us. God has bound himself to us in a covenant agreement because he loves us. Your God publicly, objectively bound himself to you at your baptism. And he will publicly identify with you again at this table this morning. Because he's not, he, he's not a God who just makes verbal, empty commitments. He's a God who binds himself in covenant. He has committed himself to us, and he's willing to make it public, and he's willing to make it official. So the formalizing of the marriage relationship not only ratifies and makes public that commitment, but it's also a protection. The marriage covenant is a protection, especially for women and children. Here's what it means. Dad is committed. Dad is committed to you. Dad is bound to you. Dad is pledged to you. Your husband is your husband, pledged to you and you alone. And so real men bind themselves to their wives. Real men don't plunder women for all the pleasures of marriage with no strings attached, with no covenant, no commitment. No, righteous men commit themselves to marriage. They unite themselves to one woman for life. This is marriage as God designed it. And yet, in Jesus' time, this design was broadly disregarded, even by those responsible for teaching God's law, those responsible to lead God's people in righteousness. So just as Jesus taught from the sixth commandment, when he said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and then he unpacks what, what that uh, obedience to that commandment looks like, by going back to the heart, Jesus goes to the motive, to the initiation of murderous behavior, which is baseless anger against your brother that boils out in words and actions. So 
Jesus does the same thing. He follows the same outline with the seventh commandment when he says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, here's how we're going to keep this commandment. The preservation of the institution of marriage and the preservation of blessed life in covenant as husband and wife doesn't begin with debates over how and when you can get a divorce. It begins all the way back in the same place as love for your brother does in the previous commandment. It begins in the, in the heart, in the mind, in the desires, and the human affections. And so Jesus says, let me read it again, verse 28. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Seventh commandment breaking doesn't begin at the point where you cross physical boundaries with a woman who is not your wife. Seventh commandment breaking begins in your desires that you direct away from your wife and toward another woman. God created us with sexual desires, and those are good. In order for us to be fruitful and multiply, there must be a desire. There must be a drive for marriage. There must be a desire for marital intimacy. Nowhere does the Bible ever say that that desire is evil or that attraction is sinful. But there is only one righteous, holy, pure, blessed, life-giving avenue for the fulfillment of those desires and attractions. And that is within the bonds of marriage. Men, if you want to have your desires fulfilled, all of your energy... All of your thoughts, all of your focus must be directed entirely to one woman, your wife. Women, there is only one person on the whole earth who is given to you this way, and that's your husband. And we make it our goal to live up to the calling as husbands and wives to make our marriages delights and not burdens. We make our marriages heaven and not hell. So young men and women, single people... You must hear this because this is the only place you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it from your mom and dad. You might, you'll hear it from me. you hear it from our brothers and sisters here, but you're not going to hear it anywhere else. And that is this. We all have a one lane, one way road to the fulfillment of sexual desire as God designed it. If you have a desire to be physically intimate with another human being, then you've got one option. One lane road. You must find a person of the opposite sex and marry them. There is no other way. Let me make it super simple. Well, is this kind of, this is maybe not sin. And maybe this is, maybe that little thing, maybe that's not super sinful. Clear the table. Make it super simple. You have one route. There are no other avenues. There is no other option that will lead you to any place but sin and misery and death. The world is littered with broken substitutes, with perverted counterfeits, and a million fakes, and a million forgeries that promise satisfaction and promise gratification, but which all leave you deserted and heartbroken and disgusted with yourself and covered in shame and guilty and sick and alone. Every other route is a lie. You have one route. Find a person of the opposite sex and marry them. That is all that God has opened to you. And yet, it's the best thing in the world. There's nothing that compares to it. Everything else is an enticement to sin against God and to sin against another person. 
But we live in a generation that wants to maintain the delusion that we can live with absolute license, free, full expression, the pursuit of anything that your flesh desires. And we want to ignore the very real present penalties that this behavior brings with it. Divorce and abuse and abortion and fatherless homes and, and, and the rotting out and the destruction and the deterioration of all society. Because, you see, everyone's okay with this nightmare hellscape that we've created. Everyone is just fine with the daily holocaust of infant children. Everyone's okay with institutionalized child murder. It's okay. That's the cost of doing business just so long as we have access to a few minutes of physical pleasure every once in a while with no strings attached. That's all we ask for. Just a few minutes of shameful behavior with no strings attached. And what's the cost? Oh, a few thousand lives a day. Okay, you got a deal. It's insane what we have created. It's insane what we have tolerated. We are reaping what we have sown. And God is not pleased with the society we have built on sexual license. And where does Jesus say this all begins? Where does it start? It begins in the lust of the heart. Not only in the hearts of those sinners out there somewhere. Not just in the weirdos and the freaks. It is in you it is in your heart the attitudes that are eroding the institution, uh, institution of marriage. They aren't only out there. They're in here. They're in here. And so the work to recover and restore the institution of marriage begins in the church, in the hearts of men. Jesus focuses on men here and the lusts of men. It's popular to assume, and you all know I grew up in fundamentalism, where um, the, uh, the, the male lust is a woman's problem. Male lust is a woman's fault. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that deal with uh, modesty and immodesty. Uh, we have the adornment of lady wisdom and the adornment of lady folly. We have the whore of Babylon and the precious, beautiful bride of Revelation. Uh, we have and will continue to talk about modest behavior and modest speech and modest dress. But Jesus isn't talking about that here. Jesus calls men to lead in chaste, honorable, pure behavior. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman who is not your wife with the intent to lust after her, if you look at her in such a way that you are deliberately nurturing and arousing sexual desire, you have broken the seventh commandment. You have committed adultery. You are guilty of eroding the institution of marriage. You, it's you. It's you. You are deliberately doing this. You nurture that desire and you nurture it along and you're going to act on it in physical ways. And Jesus says, if you do this, you're in peril. You are practicing dangerous and wicked behaviors, patterns of thought and life that are leading you into fornication, promiscuous and lewd and perverse actions because you are loving the thing that God despises. You're loving the thing that God hates. You're practically salivating over. You're dreaming about. You're obsessed with. You are consumed with the thing that God despises and God condemns. 
The thing that God will judge is the thing that you love. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave your relationship with God? If you're really excited about something that God intends to scour off the earth, where does that leave you? Well, if that's where you are, what do you do about it? How decisively must we take action against this sin? Verse 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus will frequently use hyperbole to get our attention. He's not encouraging literal self-mutilation. He's using a strong language to drive home how seriously we must take our sins. He says, remove whatever is leading you into lust and whatever you are using to nurture your disordered sexual desire. Are you tempted to sin with your smartphone? Get rid of it. Get a flip phone. Get one of those phones with a cord. Get rid of the smartphone. Are there websites and apps that have illicit material where you've made a dating profile or where you look at women or where you talk to women? Delete it forever. Never go back. Never reinstall that app. It's gone. It's gone to you. It doesn't exist. Stop watching those shows. Turn off those movies. Don't go places where you hang out in idle moments and watch women. Fill that time with work or exercise or serving someone or loving your family or loving your wife. Don't put yourself in positions where you are tempted to get emotionally involved with women who are not your wife. If you need to help a woman, take your wife with you. Take your kids with you. Don't be alone. Jesus says, take radical steps to cut off your access to the things that cause you to sin. Jesus isn't calling you to this passive wait and see kind of approach to this because passivity will destroy you. It will hurt the people all around you. Jesus calls you to strive against sin, to wage war on the sin in your mind and in your heart. Deliberately, decisively rip it out and throw it away right now and forever. You don't need HBO. You don't need Netflix. You don't need the internet and you don't need a smartphone. You do need to obey God. You must obey him. And Jesus says, if you hold on to the things that are creating temptation for you, then you and they all get thrown into hell. These sins are eternally deadly. You indulge them and they will lead you away from the Lord Jesus. They will dominate you and they will enslave you. So confess your sin, repent, turn from it, Call on God to help you to hate it the way he hates it. Do not play around with lust. Don't think that you have it handled. Get help if you need it. Men, young men, talk to your parents, talk to your brothers, talk to an elder, talk to me. Young ladies, talk to your mother, an older woman, talk to someone but we must mortify this sin. Do not suffer alone because you are not alone. Every one of us, every one of us must mortify this sin. No one is immune. And there's no shame in getting help. There's shame in being cast into hell. We'll continue next week studying more about what Jesus says about adultery and divorce. But we can't fix the institution of marriage in the world among unbelievers. 
we can make every effort to put away our sin, to turn our affections toward our spouses, to build up our marriages. And by the way, marriage isn't going anywhere. If you think marriage is actually dying, if you believe all that, marriage isn't going anywhere because eternity is the story of a mighty bridegroom and his bride enjoying each other forever, for eternity. Marriage isn't going anywhere. Also, heterosexuality is not going anywhere. I hope you understand that. It's, uh, we are people of the future. And so we start living like it now. We start living those realities now. We are the people who bring that future into the present and display it and enjoy it in the present. We'll talk more next week and continue to see what Jesus has to say. But for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to restore us in proper relationships to each other and to you. Father, forgive us. Father, we confess our sins. We, forget, uh, we, we confess our failures and we ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing and your restoration, your redemption. Father, restore and redeem our lives, our marriages, and build us up in faithfulness all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.